Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you've decided to join us, whether the first time or this is your hundredth time, no matter where you are, no matter what site you're at, whether you're watching online or somewhere in the world, uh, you're welcome today. Uh, We're going to pause just for a few weeks uh, and come back to the book of Romans a little bit later. Don't worry, we're going to get there. It's going to be great. We're going to continue to learn so much, be challenged, be encouraged, be inspired, be given hope. But uh, we need to stop in this moment of rebuilding, of resurrection, and just take a sort of a moment to think about where we are as a church, what's priority, what is God calling us to do, uh, where we need to go. Uh, every year at this time, I also take a moment to stop us, and, and I just say, hey, listen, why do we exist as a church? Simple. We exist, actually, for the same reason every other local church on earth exists. And here's how we articulate it, uh, to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, here at Sanctus Church, we believe there are five key dimensions or environments we need to participate in to become more fully devoted. One of them is called engage in mission. And one way, of course, we engage in mission is we're called to unashamedly take the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus, to families, to friends, to neighbors, to enemies, to workplaces, everywhere. Remember Jesus' last words in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you always till the very end of the age. His last command, of course, should be our first priority. And yet, a growing, difficult, you could call the new battle, has been happening for a while, but specifically recently, across the church in Canada. Just near the end of the pandemic, a major study uh, was released through the Flourishing Congregation Institute, and it revealed what many of us have felt, wondered, and seen for a while. 66% of church leaders who were interviewed basically said evangelism is not a priority in their church. More than 6 out of 10 churches Not a priority. I shared this last year too. What was even more shocking in this conversation is that 45% of those who work with kids, teens, and families, so those that are employed by churches like youth pastors and family pastors and key volunteers, actually said it is wrong, inappropriate, sinful to actually share the good news of Jesus with people from another faith, no faith, or a different spirituality. And their reasoning was, if I don't share the Christian faith with them, maybe they won't be offended and they'll come back and they'll talk to me and maybe I can share the gospel. So basically, we've got a crisis of belief and we've got a crisis of courage happening right in the middle of a post-pandemic world. But we've been studying Romans. What did Paul basically begin with in Romans chapter 1? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It has the power of God for salvation for whoever believes, first Jews, then non-Jews. What did Jesus' best friend say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son Jesus in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So we're all called to witness, to share, to proclaim the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the physical resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. We're we're also called to share our own stories of how Jesus has radically transformed and saved us. We need to do this personally. We also need to do this as a whole community. But, 
there's a busyness of life. And then we lived through COVID. And now in these post-COVID years, as we're trying to rebuild, and as we're still facing down fear and also apathy, how do we keep this life-giving command of Jesus at the center of what this church is doing as we rebuild, as resurrection comes? How do we keep moving out as a whole church, knowing that, yes, of course, some of us have the gift of evangelism, yet most of us have the discipline, but we're all called to share the gospel? Now, many of you, not all of you know, that Alpha has become one of our most consistent approaches across our whole church to actually reach people with the good news of Jesus. Many of you have heard of the Alpha course or the Alpha experience, but let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Alpha is a series of 11 interactive video sessions that explore faith and life and God in a friendly and open and informal environment. Each talk looks at a different question around faith, and it's designed to create conversation. Alpha has been run all over the world. I think over 30 million people have now taken Alpha globally in 100 countries. I think it's been translated or dubbed into 100 languages. In Canada, now over 1 million people have taken the Alpha experience. That means one out of every 39 Canadians has done this. And since it's in so many languages, think about the advantage of this. Over 400,000 new immigrants have just been welcomed into our country recently. What an amazing tool. Everyone's welcome. It's running cafes and pubs and churches and universities and homes. And then, of course, during the pandemic, the most unexpected thing took place. I shared this last year as the world went into lockdown and churches went into lockdown and churches went online. Alpha went online, too, expecting actually for it to be devastated. And the reverse took place. It exponentially grew in 2020 in the middle of all the chaos. 30,000 churches and organizations ran Alpha globally. 1.3 million people took Alpha during the pandemic. Now, as we're coming out of the pandemic, we need to keep sharing the gospel. And we're going to keep doing this with Alpha. Now, I love Alpha. I've done it myself. Many of you have become Christians through Alpha. Others of you have actually helped lead it. And, and you might not know this. You might know this. These are the questions that are addressed. Uh, is there more to life? Than this. Uh, who's Jesus? And why did Jesus die? And how can I have faith? And why and how should I pray? And how should I read my Bible? And who's the Holy Spirit? And does God, God even guide us? And how can I resist evil? And does God even heal today? And how and why should I tell others about Jesus? Now, every year there's something happening in Alpha World that's connected to us. And something very significant actually happened in the last 12 months that most of you probably don't know about. Here's one major example of what's happened in Alpha that's impacting the world. For the very first time ever, they have just launched the Chinese Alpha film series. This is the first contextualized Alpha. That means this was filmed entirely in Mandarin, and it allows Mandarin-speaking audiences to explore, like us, faith, life, and meaning, but it's done in their heart language with people in their own connection, their own community groups, and the cultural content is directed at them. So many of you watching uh, are, may not be Chinese by descent. Many of you don't speak Mandarin, but I want you to stop, and I want you to watch this intro, because this, what we're about to watch, is already having massive effects around the world and has massive opportunity for us. So let's watch this together. Hey,廖志啊,你有沒有想過你是誰? 
啊！就是吗？什么能让我快乐？金钱，金钱能让我快乐。看见帅哥能让我快乐。睡觉，睡觉。<笑>如果有一个神，我会问他为什么把我照得这么好看。我的男朋友带他来呀。<笑>我现在是全世界最有名的一个人，我想要的大部分都可以达到了。那为什么我是那么难过？我从一个人发展到五十个人共同群体，很多人就说：“哎，非常顺利，感觉你很幸运。”过去我曾经认为这个世界上谁都靠不住，我唯一能靠的就是我自己。上学。工作、结婚、人生，就是如此吗？当我明白了这个事实以后，我的生命就彻底改变了。太漂亮了！那天晚上之后，我对耶稣的认识就发生了完全的改变。从这里开始，进入到这里。我感觉到我找到了我人生要找的答案，就在这里。直到我认识耶稣以后，我真实的经历到什么叫做有意义、有目标、有价值的生活。Uh, OK <laughs>。Did you just see that? Like that is incredible, and think about how many people are from that background or speak Mandarin in the GTA, and we have now this amazing tool. Let's step back even farther. Barna, the Barna Group, did a major global evaluation on Alpha in multiple cultures with multiple people from multiple backgrounds, and I shared this I think last year, the year before. I need to do it again. The stats are incredible. So if you are already tuning me out. Listen, please. This is what happens after someone goes through Alpha. Listen to these stats: eighty-two percent of non-Christians describe themselves as followers of Jesus after going through Alpha. Eight out of ten people who take Alpha become Christians. Like, think about that. Seventy-eight percent of Christians that are not active church members suddenly, after taking Alpha, reconnect with Jesus and become regular church attenders. Ninety-one percent of Christians that take Alpha, who are regular church attenders, have a more intimate relationship with Jesus. Like, just think about that. That's incredible. And why we love Alpha is because Alpha is designed that if God doesn't show up, actually, it's just a huge failure. And it's designed for God to encounter people that we probably would never think He'd want to encounter, or they would never be looking for Him. There's four things that are sort of Foundational to the Alpha worldview that are rooted right in God, right in the Scriptures, and also it's our bias here at Sanctus. Here's the first one: God is relational. The foundation of the Christian faith is God is both three, and He's one. He is persons in relationship. So at the heart of God, at the heart of the universe, is relationship, not individualism. 
Well, Western culture may be about finding ourselves by ourselves. Christianity is about finding ourselves in self-giving relationship. That's why we love Alpha. It's done in community. And by the way, a little side note, if you're watching this and you're no longer attending church, you need to because this is not how we find ourselves by ourselves, everyone. This is a together thing. Just saying. Second of all, God is incarnate. Jesus' humanity in history is an important corrective for this age of abstract, disembodied truths. Alpha is not just a collection of videos or some talks about something out there. It's actually truth embodied in relationship in the moment. Third, it's God as host. The controversy surrounding the way in which Jesus hosted and was hosted at meals is lost a lot of times by us as modern readers. In his cultural context, eating with someone was the ultimate demonstration of acceptance and welcome. His willingness to share life with others caused scandal, especially among religious people, because he kept eating with sinners. The invitation to eat with sinners is what Christ actually extends to all of us, because we're all sinners. And that's why, critical to the Alpha experience, we lay a table, we actually eat together. And even in the virtual one, when it took place during the pandemic, and even now, people eat together on the screen and participate. But the point is, there's an invitation. Anyone can come, and we eat together, and we hear together, and we talk together. And the last one, the most critical, is this. God is helper. The Christian life and the Christian faith is born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the helper. He's also the one who reveals Christ. He's the one who empowers life called mission. He's the one who convicts hearts and allows us to actually be changed. Therefore, reliance on the Holy Spirit, the reliance on the Holy Spirit is at the center of pointing to Jesus. And that's why it's at the center of the Alpha experience. Daryl Johnson, who's a very close friend of mine and a mentor, simply said years ago, Evangelism is simply joining into a conversation the Holy Spirit is already having with somebody. So this boils down to a simple thing. Invitation. To have the courage to go to someone, invite someone, and watch the Holy Spirit through a series of conversations, do the impossible, and see them come to faith. Now, we've run Alpha here for decades. Some years, incredibly successful. Other years, not so much. Sometimes, like, like seems like hundreds and hundreds, sometimes very few. But again, the point is we always are in the posture of opening the opportunity. Now, some of you have joined us since the pandemic, and you actually have never seen Alpha. You don't know what it is. Some of us have seen it, but we've never invited someone. And I'm going to encourage you to do that near the end. Uh, Lots of us even during the pandemic and before the pandemic, did invite people. Some of our friends and family did come. Some of you were actually watching Became Christians through Alpha. Others of us invited and no one came, so we sort of gave up. I want to encourage you not to give up and have courage again. But every year we stop, and we actually take a whole Sunday sermon out to do this because we also need to be reminded not only just of the power of Alpha in the sense of what it provides and what we're called to do as a discipline of evangelism. But deeper than that, we need to be reminded of our faith and reminded actually how good this is. So today we're going to stop, we're going to pause, and we're going to watch one of the sessions together. And as I was talking to Robin uh, last week, she wants us to watch the Who is Jesus video. So if you're a seeker or a skeptic from another faith today and and you're just sitting in one of our locations or you're watching this online, Welcome to Sword of Alpha today. You're going to be able to watch part of this and see who Jesus is. And for many of us who are followers of Jesus, this isn't just a good reminder. This is actually an amazing moment, again, to, to, 
to see who Jesus is and also begin to think, who do I really need to share him with? So let's all watch this video together. He is arguably the most famous person in history. Over two billion people claim to follow him. That's one third of the world's population. He's represented in art and literature more than any other figure. Time magazine called him the most influential person who has ever lived. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mm. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, I believe he was a person. Um, he's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. Son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. If you read the Bible, I don't think I could believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> he can be any, but for me, he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so. I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. For much of my life, I wasn't a Christian. I come from a family of trial lawyers, barristers. My father was a barrister, my mother was a barrister, my sister is a barrister. My son qualified as a barrister. My daughter qualified as a barrister. Both my grandfathers on both sides were barristers. My uncle was a barrister. If we'd had a cat, it would definitely have been a barrister. My father was a, a Jew, a secular Jew. He uh, escaped the Holocaust. Many of his family had died in the Holocaust. My mother was not a churchgoer. My father described himself as an agnostic. And I came to the conclusion that I was an atheist as a teenager, and I was quite an argumentative atheist. Not that I was out to convert people to atheism, but if anyone tried to convert me to Christianity, then I had a lot to say on the subject. And I was quite suspicious of Christians. I'd come across one or two of them in my gap year, and they had these smiles, which I found deeply suspicious. And in my first year at university, I had a room next to door to my great friend, Nicky Lee, and I warned him against these Christians. I said, don't let them into your room, whatever you do. But it was too late. He'd met some, and one time he and his then-girlfriend, now his wife, Scylla, came back, and they said that they had become Christians. I was horrified. I mean, they were such lovely people. I thought, how can I help them? I, I really didn't know anything about it, so I thought, I better investigate. So I managed to find this old Bible. And that night I started reading it. I started beginning of the New Testament. I read Matthew's Gospel, Mark, Luke. I got about halfway through John's Gospel, about three in the morning, I fell asleep. The following day I carried on reading. All that day, all the next day, all the day afterwards. I was a student, so I didn't have any work to do. And when I got to the end of the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it's true. You can't prove Christianity mathematically. You can't prove it scientifically. 
Science is obviously very important, but science answers a different set of questions. Science answers the questions, when and how did this world come into being? But it can't answer the question, who and why? Supposing I had a cake here, which I've made, and I give it to a scientist, the scientist will be able to answer the question, how it was made. They may be able to tell you when it was made, but only I can tell you who made it and why I made it. Only the creator of the cake can do that. Only I can tell you, I made that cake, and I can tell you why I made that cake. And it's the same with this universe. Only the creator can reveal who made this world and why he made it. And the claim of Christianity is that he has done that. The creator has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And the evidence is not scientific evidence, that's not the only kind of evidence, but historical evidence. When I was a barrister, that's what we relied on. We relied on historical evidence that we presented to a jury. It was things that had happened in the past. They weren't there. Every time a jury brings back a verdict, it's a step of faith based on evidence. And I myself could not be a Christian if I didn't believe there was evidence. I couldn't just take a blind leap of faith. For me, faith in Jesus is a step of faith based on good historical evidence. Why start with Jesus, you might say? I didn't even believe there was a God. But I came to believe in God through Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus strongly suggests that this world has a creator and that that creator is to be seen in terms of, through the lens of, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have walked these streets around 2,000 years ago. But is there any evidence that he even existed? Well, there's actually quite a lot of evidence. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus, as did the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament for the existence of Jesus, but most of the evidence comes from within inside the New Testament. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. 
Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. So we know from evidence outside and inside the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who was he? Well, we know that he was fully human. He had a human body. He ate, he drank, he sweated, he got tired, he suffered pain. And he had human emotions, love, joy, sadness, and human experiences. He had the experience of growing up in a family, of education, of having a job, of being tempted. And he experienced bereavement and suffering and torture, and even death. Many today will say, okay, he was a human being, but only a human being. Maybe he was a great religious teacher, but no more than that. Others would say he was much more than that. Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, has said, I don't think you're led off easily by saying he was a great thinker or philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for nearly 2,000 years, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I don't believe it. He went on to say, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. What evidence is there to suggest that Jesus was more than just a great religious teacher? There are two parts to this argument. The first is, what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus didn't think he was God, that's the end of the argument. But if he did, the second part of the argument is, was he right? So, what did Jesus say about himself? First piece of evidence is the fact that his teaching, 
was centered on himself. Most great religious teachers point away from themselves. They say, don't look at me, look at God. Jesus, who personified humility in pointing people to God, pointed to himself. He said, look at me, come to me. We've talked about this search for meaning and purpose, that feeling of like a spiritual hunger that other things don't quite satisfy. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who can satisfy that spiritual hunger. Addiction is a major problem in our society. Jesus said, if the son, in other words, if, if he himself sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then there's all the stuff we carry around, worry, anxiety, guilt, fear. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Forgiveness is right at the heart of Christianity. Jesus went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, if someone sins against you, then you can forgive them, but you can't just walk up to anyone and say, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said that, the lawyers said, who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus claimed to be able to do that. In fact, Jesus said that he came to give his life so that people could be forgiven. One of the most direct claims Jesus made is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now making a claim like this was seen by the religious leaders to be blasphemy. It's tantamount to a claim to be God, and it was punishable by death by stoning. People picked up stones to stone him. Then Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. I think when you look at all the evidence, it's clear that Jesus did make that claim. It is an astonishing claim. And a claim like that needs to be tested. If you think about it, there are only three possibilities. It was not true, and Jesus knew perfectly well it wasn't true, in which case he was a fraud. Or it was not true, and he simply didn't realize it. He genuinely thought he was the son of God, in which case he was deluded. I think we'd say he was insane. But logically, there's is only one other possibility, and that is, it's true, he was telling the truth. C.S. Lewis, Cambridge professor, best known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he put it like this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So was Jesus right in what he said about himself? What evidence is there to support his claims? Well, the first piece of evidence is his teaching. Much of the New Testament records numerous occasions where crowds gather to hear Jesus teach. And on one occasion, on a mountain like this, more than 5,000 people gathered to listen to the teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has been widely acknowledged amongst the greatest teaching of all time. 
Jesus' teaching has been the foundation of our entire civilization. Many of our laws were originally founded on Jesus' teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then this, totally revolutionary. Love your enemies. In fact, we've advanced in every field of science and technology, yet in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teachings of Jesus. They are the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you might expect God to speak. Another thing that marked Jesus' life was his love for the marginalized, feeding the hungry, healing the sick. His character has impressed millions who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Time magazine called him the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness and love in the history of Western humanity. He was a person in whom even his enemies could find no fault and whose friends said that he was without sin. It's been said that our character is truly tested when we're under pressure or in pain. And when Jesus was being tortured, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Another piece of evidence is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No one else in history has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Of course, it could be suggested he was a kind of clever con man who set out deliberately to deceive people. He read all these prophecies and he thought, right, I'm going to go through and I'm going to fulfill them all in my life. The difficulty with that theory is that, first of all, the sheer number of them. And then the fact that, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of these things. There were prophecies about the exact manner of his death, about the place of his burial, even about the place of his birth. Clever command would be going around and say, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It's too late. Then the final piece of evidence, his conquest of death. The physical resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity. And this is relevant to every single one of us because we're all going to die. It's the ultimate statistic. One in one die. You go to a funeral. The coffin is lowered into the ground. It looks absolutely final. And it is, unless Jesus died and was buried and then was raised to life. In which case, death has been conquered. But is this just wishful thinking? Um, Most of the dead. That's what I was taught. I'm not, I'm, I don't know, I can't say yes or no. Yes, I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. As a man of science, I think that's pretty impossible. <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> yes, yes I did. I definitely don't think that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he did. <laughs> no, Jesus did not. <laughs> did not come back from the dead. That's ridiculous. Well, it could be used as a metaphor, right? Could have been a, a drug trip. Yeah, of course it did. I do believe in that, 100%. Just the relationship that I have with him is proof enough. I'm not sure, I haven't looked that up. Um, I, don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. There are four pieces of evidence for the resurrection. 
The first is his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained how Jesus' body was absent from the tomb that first Easter day. People have come up with all kinds of explanations. For example, maybe the authorities stole the body. Well, in that case, why didn't they produce it when people started saying that he'd risen from the dead? Or perhaps the robbers stole the body. But when the disciples heard that Jesus had, had been seen, they ran to the tomb and they found that the tomb was not empty. Inside the tomb were the grave clothes that Jesus had been wrapped in. The only valuable thing that a robber might have taken was still there. The grave clothes had collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when a butterfly has emerged. And the piece that had been around Jesus' head had been folded up and put in a different place. And when they saw that, they believed. The second was his presence with the disciples. Jesus was seen on more than 11 occasions, on one occasion by a group of around 500 people. People say, well, it could have been a hallucination. Well, hallucination does happen among highly strong, very nervous or highly imaginative people, or people who are sick or are on drugs. But the disciples don't fit any of those categories. They were cynics like Thomas. There were tough fishermen, there were tax collectors, and tax collectors do not hallucinate. The third piece of evidence is the transformation that we see in the disciples. Here was a group of people who were disillusioned, despairing that their leader had died, and then suddenly they were transformed. They started saying, we've seen Jesus, he's really alive, and they went around telling everybody. Later on, practically all of them were killed, crucified, tortured, beheaded because of what they believed. And if they were deceiving people, all they had to do was say, no, 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 it's not actually true. But they never said that because they knew it was true. It had totally transformed their lives. And as a result, this extraordinary movement swept around the whole known world. And it's a movement without precedent in the history of humanity. And fourth, it's still happening today. There are now over 2.3 billion Christians around the world of every ethnicity, continent, nationality, economic, social and intellectual background. They all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. So what are we to make of Jesus? It seems to me clear that Jesus really did claim to be a man whose identity was God. And when we look at the evidence of his teaching, his life, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, to say he was insane or a fraud seems to me absurd, illogical, actually unbelievable. On the other hand, it provides the strongest possible supporting evidence that what Jesus said about himself was true. And when I looked at the evidence, when I read the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it is true. I didn't want to become a Christian because I thought if I became a Christian, life would be totally miserable from that moment onward. So I tried to put it off. I thought I'll put off becoming a Christian to my deathbed. And then I realized that would not be intellectually honest. So very reluctantly, I kind of said, okay, Yes. And at that moment, I can still remember that moment so clearly. It dropped from here, from my head, being convinced it was true, to here in my heart, having an experience of a relationship with Jesus. And 
finding what, I guess looking back, unconsciously I'd been searching for all my life. Something that provided ultimate meaning and purpose to my life. It was the very last place on earth that I expected to find it. But at that moment, I found that what Jesus said was true. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. It really is true that God has revealed himself in Jesus. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There is hope beyond this life. There is hope for this life. Right now, in this life, in an encounter with Jesus, we find life and life in all its fullness. Okay, so now we've again seen and heard uh, what God is up to, what we're being invited into. And again, let me just be very clear. Alpha is just a tool. Uh, Alpha is not God, but it's an amazing tool. It's an intentional tool. It's a thought, thoughtful tool. And actually, it's an excellent tool. And God is at the center of all of it. So what do we do now? Number one, I just want to encourage you. You need to begin to believe again God's already working in your sphere of influence. God's already working in your family. God's already working among your friends. God's already working in your condo or on your street or in your friendship circle or at work. And I just want you to pause. Do you actually believe God is working there? God is speaking? God is prepping ground? I think a lot of us would say no, but the truth is He is. So maybe you need to pray a little prayer and say, Lord, help me see where you're already working. Here's the second thing. I want to encourage you to start praying again. Every year when we do this, we ask the Holy Spirit to put in our minds a person or a group of people that we're supposed to invite. And, and you need to have the courage to do it. Some of you are like, I'm not praying that. I don't want to see anyone. No, 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 no. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit, who do you want me to invite to Alpha? But even more than that, Lord, who do you want me to pray for so their eyes can be open? Third, very un-Canadian, very Christian, Invite. We have an opportunity, like think about the size of our church. We can invite hundreds, actually thousands of people to this experience if we would have the courage just to do it. And we're launching Alphas even coming up this week. Pickering, Ajax, Bowmanville, Port Perry. We're, we're going to try as many as we can, no matter where or how they look. We just want to encourage you to invite people. And you can just sign up at sanctuschurch.com backslash alpha. Also, if you're at one of our physical locations today and you're like, oh my goodness, I want to invite someone. Actually, I want to go. Just walk out right after this message, right after the service, and say, I want to attend Alpha. What do I do? Where do I go? You need to believe God is working. You need to actually pray again for those who are lost and seeking. You have to have the courage to invite. But this last thing, what I'm about to say, I think might be the most important thing I'm going to share today. I think a lot of us actually need to consider launching Alpha in our own friendship circles. I mean, think about this. A lot of your friends know you. A lot of your family know you. Uh, many of us have opportunity. And it's so absolutely easy 
to literally launch an alpha in your home, at your workplace. And we'll, we'll help you. Again, if you just go to the website, right? Again, sanctuschurch.com backslash alpha and say, I actually want to lead a group. I want to launch one. We'll help you do that. But this is what I'm seeing globally. When the pandemic happened and then after the pandemic, some of the alphas that exploded the most were actually run in homes just by people saying, I'm inviting friends and family. And let me just say, like, maybe you're a person who speaks Mandarin and you just saw this incredible resource. Well, then launch one. And oh, by the way, we'll help you if you want to launch one in a language that's not English. We'll help you find that language if it exists. Maybe you want to launch one in Spanish or Portuguese or Romanian or I don't know, maybe uh, you want to launch it in Arabic. Just say to God, I'm willing to do this. And actually, I want to step out and do this. And let us know and we can empower you. So let me do this again. Believe God's working already in your circle. Pray that God would actually show you who you're supposed to invite. Have the courage to invite somebody either to the ones we're running or actually go even farther and choose to launch one in your own home, in your own context, in your own workplace, maybe in English or another language, and just see what God does. Let's take a moment and let's just pray that God does some amazing things in this rebuilding moment. So, Lord, thanks for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have actually taken Alpha in this church's history. Thanks for like literally hundreds of baptisms. Every time someone stands up and gets baptized, they say, I went to Alpha, I met Jesus. And we just want to pray in this rebuilding, resurrection moment, as things are tough and slow and slogging, that Holy Spirit, you would pour out and do unexpected things in and through Alpha, in and through Sanctus, in this moment. So we're expecting you're going to do new things, unexpected things, and profound things. And we just pray you'd help establish it in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen.